guess that's my cue. Uh, boy, Brother Johnson wasn't kidding. This has been a long time coming. Uh, most of you probably heard the story of our last trip here. I was supposed to preach here over Thanksgiving-ish of last year, and of course we got sick. And so all we knew of Oklahoma was the freeway and the inside of the Johnson's house and a few tornado stories. Uh, but obviously we get along well because we came back uh, to try it again, and uh, we are abundantly thankful to be healthier uh, this time. If you've never done the quarantine routine with four adults and 11 kids in one house, uh, you're missing out. <laughs> uh, we could have we could have made a podcast or something, something technological. So you, I don't do that, you do. Uh, but it is good to meet all of you. We heard many good things about so many of you. And uh, we're thankful the Lord's uh, brought us down here again. Let's take our Bibles tonight. I'm going to have you turn to Matthew 14. Matthew chapter 14. Let's stand together as we read the text. Now, we're going to look at a lot of this chapter, so we're not going to read the entire thing. We're going to pick up at a little bit of a weird spot. But we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 10. And this is the tail end of the story of Uh, the beheading of John the Baptist. So picking up in verse 10, And he, that's Herod, sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. Let's pray. Father, I know that those particular words are rather familiar to most of us. Yet we recognize your word is infinitely deep and infinitely powerful. Father, we thank you for the different ways in which you communicated to us in your word by Uh, epistolary letters, by historical records, by uh, narratives concerning the Son of God walking this earth in the flesh. And so we pray, Lord, that you would take this passage and break it like these loaves and fishes in it and feed us. Help us, Lord, to worship you more fully. I pray you'd open our eyes to have them set on Christ more fully as a result of being here tonight. And Father, we thank you that you walk with us through this barren land. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. These guys keep trying to hide my water from me. I got to tell you something from us mountain people. It's hot here. We're not used to the humidity. I'm getting kind of used to that one. I feel like you could swim to the car without touching the ground. Uh, But it is. I kind of scared my wife, though. A couple times I made the comment and said, you know, it's really not that bad. (laughs) I grew up in Alaska. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I guess the Lord's acclimating us to uh, southern climates a little bit. All right, I'm going to begin with a question we all kind of know the answer to, but I want us to think about it again. 
What does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, obviously, that includes that we're talking about the biblical, real Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go into it. I think most of us know there's many fake Christs out there, aren't there? Especially in today's confused religious climate. Much of what passes for worship today is by devotees, disciples of a fake Christ. So we're not talking about that. But what does it mean to be a disciple of the real Jesus Christ? Obviously, we could sort of dissect it and give it a technical forensic definition. A disciple means a learner or a pupil or a follower of a person's teaching. But when it comes to being a disciple of a great teacher, it means more than being just a student. It's more than just being an intellectual. It also carries the idea of being an imitator. The Lord said in John 8, 31, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Or John 15, 8, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. He's not saying there that by bearing fruit you become a disciple. He's saying by bearing fruit you prove your discipleship. The Lord said earlier in that same text, Without me ye can do nothing. A lot of religious activity, uh, but nothing of eternal substance. So the definition of a disciple is a pupil, a close follower, imitator. But what about a ground-level, day-to-day, rubber-meets-the-road kind of definition? Think about the original disciples. When they left their nets or their tax tables or whatever else, could they have known what being his disciple was actually going to look like? They didn't have the New Testament. Of course they couldn't have known entirely. They were convinced the one they were following was worth following, but they couldn't have known the pathway that was coming. And in a sense, that's true of you and I. How many perfect patterns are there for your individual life? There's Christ himself, but your own individual pathway is unique. We don't know all the pathways that our discipleship is going to go down So when they answered that call to follow me, one of the things that meant was the complete resignation of their entire selves. Uh, No compartmentalizing of the life. You know what I mean by that? You take an earthly teacher, a math teacher, or whatever else, you give them the math side of your brain, basically. But there's parts of your life you tell them, that's frankly none of your business. Not so with this teacher. To be his disciple means all the compartments are open. Someone has said character is who you are in the dark. All things are open unto him. He sees them all. No compartments. Now surely the disciples found out that the resignation of self, the laying down of the will, was a process. But they were signed up for the journey, come what may. But it also meant following a teacher that never stopped teaching. All the universe, every circumstance, every day and every hour was a classroom of sorts. I mean, think about it. The chief shepherd never stops leading. The master teacher never stops teaching. 
I'm reminded when I say that of Deuteronomy 6, with many, which many of you parents probably have memorized, at least the main skeleton. What's your chief duty? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your might. Out of that, have his word internalized, and then out of that, what do you do? When are you supposed to teach your children, parents? Sunday morning? A Tuesday afternoon? It's all the time. Christ really came as the embodiment. One of the things he fulfilled was that. He was constantly teaching. Birds in the air. Trees on the side of the pathway. Situations that went on in the marketplace. Everything was a part of his classroom. And it also meant that he reserved the right to bring the lessons whenever and wherever he sees fit. I know we're given sort of highlights here. I imagine there were days in the lives of the earthly disciples when maybe it seemed like, relatively speaking, not a lot was happening. Uh, and then there were days, without warning perhaps, where it seemed like a month's worth of events fit into a 24-hour period. And more often than not, those lessons were very different than what they would have chosen for themselves had they been invited to give their opinion. How many of you have learned over the years to be glad God doesn't ask your opinion when he needs to teach you things? Because we would pick the easy pathway and we wouldn't learn it. Doesn't he know how to put his finger right on the pressure point for our good. I've said it at times in my own life. Lord, can't you teach me the way you're teaching them? That's the way I'm teaching them. <laughs> that may not be the way I'm going to teach you. And we see one such example here in Matthew 14. And I frankly find it amazing going through this text that most of what's recorded here seems to take place in one single day. So picture that as we go through this. We're talking about one day of discipleship following the earthly Son of God. And the disciples go from extreme sorrow to exhaustion to exasperation. And then to amazement. And then to deeper exhaustion and sheer terror. And then to greater terror. And then to joy. And then to terror once again. And then back to amazement. Then to peace and calm. And finally to worship. Which is where ultimately all of his teaching is aimed. So let's examine just a few of these discipleship lessons around the lake. Uh, lesson number one, we've sort of touched on it. I'm not going to read all of verses 1 to 13, but here's lesson number one. It's the sudden removal of a beloved spiritual mentor. Now, verse 3 begins kind of a flashback explanation to the execution of John the Baptist. In verse 12, John's disciples give him a decent burial, then they come and tell the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13, he heads off by himself into the wilderness, presumably to spend some time with his father in secret prayer. And that's how the day begins. Now, what about Jesus' disciples? Now, their reaction's not recorded here, but we have to think what John the Baptist would have meant to at least some of them. He wasn't just some guy that they heard on sermon audio. You back up a little bit, and you had 
centuries of prophetic silence. God effectively hit the pause button on the writing of his word. By the way, it wasn't because he ran out of things to say. It was because he chose to do it that way, and we don't know all the reasons. So then there's the supernatural events surrounding the birth of John and the Lord Jesus, and then three more decades pass. And then all of a sudden there appears this barrel-chested man with a voice like thunder, eating his locusts and wild honeys, dressed in camel hair and living in the wilderness, and he's proclaiming that the coming of the Messiah is imminent, in fact, that he's on earth right now about to be revealed. By the way, John the Baptist was no small figure. I think sometimes we, we may, and I think some do get the idea reading through that here's a guy crunching the heads off locusts under a juniper tree somewhere with maybe a few followers. When you read things like all of Judea went out to hear him, we're talking about a guy that had tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people who heard him preach in that wilderness. He's a man who denounced the scribes and Pharisees as vipers right to their faces. It was like he didn't know what fear was. And Jesus himself said that he was the greatest prophet that had ever been born. Now, why do I say all that? At least some of the original 12 disciples had been disciples of John first. You see that in the early chapters of the Gospel of John. They'd been John the Baptist followers, his students. They'd walked with him. They heard him preach daily. They knew him for some time before they had known Christ. Some of them were there that day that the Messiah was baptized and revealed for who he really was. And the day John pointed that chunky finger and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And one of those there was Andrew, who first went and found his own brother, Peter. So it was the ministry of John the Baptist that brought some of these disciples to Christ in the first place. And so even though they weren't following John daily anymore, he, would have, he still would have been very, very dear to them. And it would have been a comfort knowing he was close by. Surely that would continue. And admit it, humanly speaking, it's a pretty senseless way to die, isn't it? I mean, if I were writing the story, I mean, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah, right? Why not take him up in a chariot of fire too? Not a ruthless king who couldn't control his passions and a wicked, adulterous relationship with a woman who was willing to prostitute her own daughter in order to kill the preacher. And then the life of this greatest prophet is snuffed out with his head on a royal platter, watched by a drunken group of reprobates, ordered by a king who didn't even want to do it in the first place. Does that make sense? It doesn't. Not to us. And so the news comes to Jesus and the disciples, and Jesus heads off to pray by himself, and no doubt are in the dumps of discouragement. Brother Johnson was just mentioning people that have poured into us. By the way, if you have any degree of maturity in your life at all as a Christian, you're the product of a lot of people. All of us are. All of us are. I sit and think about, I can't think of them all, but how many people did it take really humanly to bring you to Christ? I don't even think most of us know. Do you know everyone praying in secret for you? I don't. 
Most of us have had precious people who've mentored us and helped keep our spiritual head on straight and maybe brought us to Christ in the first place, and then all of a sudden, they're gone. Uh, maybe the Lord takes them away in death. Maybe he sends them to Pakistan or somewhere else. The world suddenly feels very lonely. Maybe it's a tendency to blend the messenger with the one who sent the messenger. Everyone who ministers to us, and as we minister to others, we always have to remember we're like John the Baptist in a sense. We're one voice crying in the wilderness for a very limited time. Many voices have come and gone. I wonder what it was like for Joshua. Remember, Moses was killed in discipline. He didn't grow old and die. His eye wasn't dim. His natural force wasn't abated. The Lord took him up and removed him from the earth. Then he comes to Joshua and says, Moses, my servant, is dead. You're in charge. I bet the world felt a little lonely to Joshua right about then. I don't think the prophet Elisha loved the fact that Elijah was leaving. I doubt Timothy read that last letter from the imprisoned Paul and went, Oh, great. Paul's about to lose his head. That's good news. But that's what happened. Or how about the early churches when John, the last of the apostles, finally passed on to glory? So we can't confuse those that lay blocks in the building with the master builder himself. So their day begins with the removal of a beloved spiritual mentor. Next lesson around the lake is a major blow to their self-sufficiency. And we read those verses. He, Jesus went forth. He saw a great multitude, verse 14, and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples come to him saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that, he may go, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. Now think about this. Was it possible for the disciples to actually have Jesus Christ bodily present, you could touch him, and still trust in their own self to meet their needs? Well, in a sense, again, we can do the same thing, can't we? Jesus isn't here bodily, but remember, he went away. He said, it's expedient for you that I go away. He's given us an indwelling presence, the Holy Spirit living within. Jesus is omnipresent. Where's Jesus right now, by the way? Read Revelation 1. Can you picture him? Eyes as a flaming fire, walking these aisles. He's the main audience in here. He's the main audience. Now, self-sufficiency does not go away in one great lesson. I wish it did. But at times, the Lord sees fit to help us make great steps forward by orchestrating events that show us how utterly powerless we are. I mean, let's say you know the Lord wants you to do a particular thing, whatever it is. Maybe it's something difficult. And maybe you take stock of the possibility of you doing it. You're doing the mental seesaw. And what's the natural tendency? Let's see. I've had enough rest lately. I'm rested up. There hasn't been any bad news recently that's plunged me into gloom. I feel like I have the intelligence to meet this challenge. I feel pretty sharp. 
I'm in a place where I feel like I have some spiritual reserves to invest in others. I can see how to carry this particular duty out. I have the steps planned out. And oh yeah, Jesus is here with me. What about when all of those are removed except the last one? So the disciples are... They're following along at a distance while Jesus departs. Don't know for exactly how long. They're probably having some conversations about John the Baptist's departure. And they come upon Jesus as he's ministering to this massive crowd and he's healing the sick. Now that's a simple statement, but can you picture it? You talk about that alone being amazing. Another proof, he's the Messiah, one man healing hundreds, if not thousands, by himself. And it's amazing how spiritual exhaustion can make us blind to the amazing things God is always doing. I've thought, you ever been in a, a really heavy rainstorm, and then the rain lets up, and you say, hey, it quit raining. But it didn't, it just sounds like it quit raining. Sometimes you look around and go, God's blessing stopped. It didn't stop. You just may not see them as much. His blessings are always raining down. So they look right past the miracle. They're getting jaded to that, that he's healing everybody. And rather than rejoice in what's happening, hey, we've got people here who couldn't haven't been able to walk since birth and now they're now they're leaping around and praising God and what are they thinking I hear stomachs growling I see the size of this group I know how human metabolisms work I have a watch I notice there's no grocery stores nearby I can see where this is heading and I don't like it you know they they see the walls closing in. Lord, it's already been a depressing day. Can we be done? Now keep in mind the master teacher brought all of this together, including the multitude that followed him, on purpose. Look at their assessment in verse 15. This is a desert place. Translation, this is the wrong place for a lesson, Lord. The time is now past. This is the wrong time for a lesson, Lord. Send the multitudes away. We don't have the resources for this lesson, Lord. Sound familiar? I wonder, what if they'd said, Lord, we, we see what's taking place. What do you want us to do? But instead, here's what they do. <laughs> Lord, we see what's happening. Now here's what you need to do. They tell the Lord, <clears throat> you see all these people? Get rid of them. Tell them to go home. And of course, the Lord's response probably shocked them. He not only says they don't need to go anywhere, they need not depart. 
give ye them to eat. Not only do they not need to leave, you're going to feed them. Excuse me? You have got to be kidding me. Maybe some of them turned their pockets inside out if they had them in those robes and they looked around and went, I'll remind you, though, Jesus, yes, fed the multitude, but so did the disciples. Christ gave to them, and they fed that multitude. You see, it's never our great faith that moves God to meet our needs. It's his great faithfulness. In fact, he does this miracle in spite of their conspicuous lack of faith. Now, how does he do that? Verse 17, he has them bring what little they did have and present it to him. Ever come to the Lord and said, well, I don't... Boy, the devil's got a lot of lies. Here's one of them. Serve the Lord when you have more and you can do more. You know what that'll do? That'll keep you from giving and serving until you die. What's the Bible say? He that's faithful and least will be faithful in much. So they find some loaves and fishes, and rather than saying, Lord, here's what I have. Do with it what you want. They're saying, Lord, I only have a little. You, you really, frankly, can't do anything before it. It says, bring them to me. Verse 19, I find this wonderful. He has them... Boldly face the extremity of the situation. He has them stare at just how impossible this really is. Verse 19, he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. If you look at the parallel passage, we'll not turn there, in Luke 9, he made them sit down in groups of 50. And by the way, the Lord didn't ask dine in or carry out. The disciples are thinking, carry out, and the Lord just says, dine in. Why groups of 50? Is it because Jesus doesn't know how to count? No. Is it because he didn't know how many were there? No. Why would he do that? I think it was so they had a visual of how impossible this was, and they were forced to stare at it exactly as the situation was. I used to be a big sports fan. Confessedly, it was a big idol to me. I don't pay a lot of attention, but one of the things we did get to do on this trip, since we're not locked up uh, in a house, uh, we went to that Bricktown ballpark, and I was thinking, you know, I'm told that seat's about 9,000, but if you took, you know, they have the sections where there's no seats, but if they filled those in, it would seat about 13,000. Now, just visualize this. You have 5,000 men besides women and children. It's easy to conceive of 15-ish people. Now, picture you on the pitcher's mound in that stadium with every seat in there jam-packed full and little sections, and the Lord says, now feed them. Where's the back door again? He had them face the extremity of the situation. I remember this passage speaking to me years ago. I just started a business. It was during the recession. It was before I was a, a pastor. And I remember one particular long, difficult stretch, and the bills would come, 
And, and I'm, I'm not proud of this, but it got to the point I'd stack them in this file because I didn't have the money to pay them at the time, and it was too depressing to stare at them. And I remember reading through this and the Lord instructing me through this, why not stare at all these and stare at them and all their impossibility? Because you know what? They don't scare him. So he, he has the disciples stare at just how impossible it is. And then verse 19, he blesses it. He breaks it. And notice he doesn't start passing out. He gives it to the disciples. And he has them do exactly what he had said they would do and feed the multitude. They're little when presented to him in faith. All of a sudden becomes sufficient. I'll tell you, you some of you ever do much preaching. I bet you, you know what this is like. Lord, all I have is some loaves and fishes. Can you please break it and distribute it? To feed hungry souls. And he does it. Now verse 20, they all did eat and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. A souvenir for each disciple. Now how about that? So this wasn't just a snack. This was an all-you-can-eat buffet. Everyone's filled up. There's some left over for the disciples. It reminds me of John 4, 34. Jesus said, my meat, my sustenance is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And what he was saying was, there is spiritual nourishment for the soul as we in faith do his will. In other words, as we obey by faith, there's going to be baskets left over. And the Lord does this in such a way that human glory is completely removed. The disciples didn't go and say, yeah, you know, we just got done whipping up a meal for 5,000 men plus women and children. But it got done. But the day's still not over. Lesson number three around the lake they have to come face to face with what they think is their own undoing. Verse 22, and straightway, that means immediately, Jesus constrained his disciples. Constrained is a, a forceful compelling. It's the kind of command that you don't ask why. And based on what? He never gives them the reason. You have to get in this boat and head over there now. You see, school's in session. They had a storm to catch. And the Lord made sure for their own good they were right on time. Now, verse 23, when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Now, if you look on a map where they were trying to go on that boat ride, you'll see it was actually very, very short and shouldn't have taken very long. But what happens in reality is from time before sunset until the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 and 6 a.m., they're feverishly rowing in nightmarish conditions for at least six straight hours. 
Can you imagine that? <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about exhaustion. And oh, the wicked one, he starts going to work on your mind, doesn't he? I mean, what, what do you think was going on up here? I thought we were experienced mariners. We can't even get that one right anymore. Why did I sign up for this in the first place? I should have known I couldn't do it. Hey, I heard what he said. Peter, didn't he say get in the boat? Did we, did we miss something? Is that what you heard? Why is this happening? I mean, is he mad at us? Is this some kind of vengeance? Why would he do this to us? It's black and where did he go? He's nowhere to be found in our greatest distress. Boy, we have those times. <laughs> you look around and you're thinking, where is God? We won't turn there for sake of time, but you can make a note if you want. In the parallel passage in Mark 6, there's some tremendous words there. It talks about Christ going up in the mountains. And here he is. He's up there in the dark. And the disciples are out there alone in this body of water. And these four words just cut right through the darkness with a flash of deity and say, and he saw them. Uh, no mere man could have done that. He wasn't gone. His eyes were right on that boat. Isn't that just like Jesus ever living to make intercession for us, seeing you, and you're never in a storm where he can't see and where he's not praying for you? Isn't it glorious to think? It's never true to say nobody's praying for me. There's always one whose prayers matter than anyone else's. All right, verse 25. <clears throat> and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. Now, you would think things are about to get better, but not just yet. Uh, even then, now can you, again, picture, imagine this. You, you know, nowadays we see hillsides around lakes and they're full of lights on homes and electricity and everything. It was, it was dark. As they say in Montana, it was blacker than the inside of a cow. How did they see him? Was it... Flashes of lightning? Was it an eerie moonlight? Picture yourself rowing away for those six plus hours thinking you're about to die. And here comes this form of a man walking across on the water. And they're thinking, oh, it's a ghost. Well, that's good news. And uh, they, they hit the panic button until they hear his voice. Verse 27. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And by the way, side note, if you go through the scriptures and see all the places the Lord says something like, be not afraid and don't be afraid, he always gives a reason. And that reason is always himself. He didn't say, don't be afraid, the waves aren't that bad. I've seen worse. Don't be afraid, you're not that tired, suck it up. Come on, simplify. He said, don't be afraid. It's me. It is I. Well, it's been an eventful day, but 
There's still one more lesson waiting. The fourth lesson is an attempt at bold faith that seems, seems to end in failure. Verse 28, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Now, you would, I love Peter. But you'd think after verse 27, that would be the end of the story for the night. Jesus gets in the boat. They all go to land. They find a place to sleep for 16 hours or so. But not quite. I have to wonder if some of the disciples, when Peter said that, went, couldn't you have just left things alone? Did you have to say that? After the day we've had, you've got to be kidding me. Now, this account of Peter walking on the water, is it negative or is it positive? Is it a total failure or is it a step on the way to great victory? I think sometimes it can be viewed wrongly as though the central lesson is Play it safe and don't get out of the boat. Just take a middle-of-the-road approach. Now, I want to take a moment and just point out the tremendous steps forward for Peter. Number one, that in such extreme exhaustion, after such a horrendously terrifying experience, he's still trying to take steps towards Christ. Hey, that took some guts to say that after the day they'd had. He boldly asked the Lord, if you want me to walk on this water, you're able to sustain me on it. That's quite an assertion for a guy who just said he couldn't even feed people. And the Lord's evidently pleased with Peter's reasoning. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't tell Peter, you don't even know what you're asking. What does he say? Come. Come. Yes, Peter, I'm Lord of all creation. My word is omnipotent. You have nothing. You are bankrupt, but I am sufficient. In verse 29, he walked on the water. Now, it could have been quite a distance until the relative safety of the boat was far away. It probably was. And then he begins to sink. And what causes it? He sees the wind boisterous. That means violent. Here's what changed things. The object of his faith started to shift. The meditation of his heart went from the presence and sufficiency of Christ to the violence of what was against him. I know you and I aren't walking on physical waves. I've heard people say before, as a pastor, that, well, I don't know how to meditate on the scriptures. And I'll sometimes ask them, do you know how to worry? Anybody here know how to worry? Worry is the same mental process as meditation. 
but it's constantly regurgitating the wrong information. That's what it is. Worry is meditation on the problem, the lies of the wicked one, our own insufficiency, etc., etc., etc. Biblical meditation is filling our head deliberately with truth. So what does Peter do? He cries out to the Lord, and immediately the Lord is there. Verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Well, the Lord rebuked him, but that rebuke, I'll point out, is also an open door. He does call out the need for more faith and faith on the right object, But he didn't say, O thou of little brains, wherefore didst thou get out of the boat? He didn't say, Thou of little vision, wherefore didst thou challenge the waves? Implied in the Lord's answer is this, Next time, Peter, keep your eyes on me. And you'll stay on top of the waves. In other words, keep getting out of the boat, Peter. Now, did Peter ever learn to walk on water? I'll point out at first, how did he get back to the boat after his failure? I doubt the Lord drug him. It doesn't say he carried him, and I don't think Peter swam next to him. But what's the spiritual lesson there? You know, when Peter really began to be manifested as a man walking on water, he stands up at Pentecost before a very hostile crowd. Remember, this is a guy who had denied his Lord with curses three times. And he stands up to this crowd that had slaughtered the Lord of glory. And he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. I'd say Peter was walking on some waves. 3,000 are converted. In Acts 4, when he's challenged and then arrested for preaching. Or Acts 10, when he goes to the house of Cornelius. Or Acts chapter 12, on the eve of what he thought was going to be his execution. What did the angel have to do? Wake him up. Because he was sleeping. How do you sleep between two Roman guards on the eve of having your head chopped off. Because his eyes were on the master, not on the waves. And in his last letter, he says, Knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me, he's staring a horrendous martyrdom in the face, and instead of running to save his own skin... Or instead of asking, who's going to be the greatest? He's saying, let me stir you up by way of remembrance one more time so that after I'm gone to glory, you can be strengthened still. Don't be discouraged when attempts to walk by faith end in seeming failure. That's part of the schooling process. Get back up and keep getting out of the boat. Now, why must the Lord send us into storms? Why must he stack lessons like this on top of one another? 
a lot of reasons for that. Sometimes I fear Romans 8.28 is used like a dog treat. Here's somebody struggling and you just flip them Romans 8.28. Hey, you know, all things work together for good. But it is a precious promise. But here's what's so critical. What is God's definition of good? I mean, we think of the day. Can you picture a timeline of eternity? Try. Your life's not even a speck of dust. We try to interpret good through the speck. And God's looking at the whole timeline. What is he, what's the central thing he's trying to do? It's not to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise in the worldly sense. The central thing he's trying to do if you belong to him is to conform you to the image of Christ. And here's the deal. He knows you so, he loves you so much. He's willing to inflict lesson upon lesson for your good and his glory. Uh, shortest verse in the Bible, you quoted it earlier. What's the amazing thing about Jesus weeping at the tomb of a man that he knew he was about to raise? He feels your infirmities. You know he felt the terror of those disciples in the boat? And he feels your loss and he feels your grief. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Verse 32. And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. As soon as he and Peter rejoined the others, there's a great calm and the wind just shuts off and the sea goes flat. If you've been out in the ocean or a large body of water and the wind just stops... Even then, it doesn't just go flat. Imagine how quiet it got. There's quite the lessons around the lake. Now, what did he demonstrate once again? His compassion for lost multitudes, his willingness to spend time with them and meet their needs. His ability to take our comparatively little and exponentially bless it to meet the needs of many. His goodness to feed us with the overflow of service to Him. His perfect control over all the elements of creation. His tireless prayers on our behalf and the fact that we're never out of His sight. And that He is never in the dark. Even when we seem to be. His ability to sustain us walking across the top of even the most violent of adversaries. His immediate response of compassion when we cry out for help. His ability to enter our little ship and send complete calm when he sees fit. What does that produce? Verse 33. Worship. And they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art... 
the Son of God. Are you Jesus' disciple? Now, when I say that, I'm not asking, are you saved? I hope you are. But who's really holding the reins of your discipleship? Do you find yourself telling the Lord there's certain no trespassing zones in your life and he better not touch those? Are you fighting him? When all he's trying to do is conform you to the image of Christ. See, when the Lord gave that promise and he said, learn of me, I'm meek and lowly of heart. Take my yoke upon me, said. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and ye shall find rest for your souls. It's not just talking about salvation. What's meekness? Biblical meekness isn't being a limp-wristed sweetie. The men that are here, by the way, God wants you to be men. Our country's forgetting that. But meekness is a power under control that if you trace it in the word of God is rooted in God's sovereignty. The idea of meekness is you're able to rest because you know who holds the reins and that there is no rogue Adam in the universe. Nobody can speak unless God allows it. Nothing happens by accident. The Lord says, learn of me. You'll find rest for your souls. There's rest in letting him have the reins. Brother Johnson, I'll turn it over to you after we close in prayer. Father, <clears throat> thank you for the, the bright and cheerful threads and the tapestry of our life, but thank you for the dark ones too. Because we acknowledge none are by accident. And all are placed by loving hands. Help us to be a people that truly rests in your purposes because we rest in your character. Thank you for the ongoing work you do in our life. Thank you, Lord, that you will complete us. And you will Conform us to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Our song tonight, I'm going to ask Miss Pat to begin playing I Surrender All. And uh, with our heads bowed, eyes closed, I do want to give you an opportunity this evening to talk to the Lord about perhaps what he has talked to you about tonight. Maybe he's pinpointed something in your life that you need to do business with, make a decision about. So as she plays this, I want to invite you to have a time of prayer.